Ride Holds is a social media and creative marketing agency owner, husband, father, DJ, global citizen, keynote speaker, and is proud to bring you the Ride Holds Show Podcast. Episode of the Reinhold Show podcast. Again, if you haven't uh, subscribed or written us a five star review, we would very much appreciate that. We also want to thank our listeners. Uh, we recently won uh, Best Black Hosted Podcast here in Canada by the By Blacks Magazine People's Choice Awards. So we just want to extend a huge thank you for that. Um, our show has two goals, and the first goal is always to bring value to you, the listeners, uh, but it's also to make our guests feel like they are coming home. So our next guest today is, uh, he is an absolute legend. His name is David Meltzer. David Meltzer is the co-founder of Sports One Marketing and formerly served as CEO of the renowned Lee Steinberg Sports and Entertainment Agency, which was the inspiration for the movie Jerry Maguire. Jerry! His life's mission is to empower over 1 billion people to be happy. This simple yet powerful mission has led him on an incredible journey to provide one thing, value. In all his content and communication, that's exactly what you receive. He's a three-time international best-selling author, three-time, a top 100 business coach, the executive producer of Entrepreneur's number one digital business show, Elevator Pitch, and host of the top entrepreneur podcast, The Playbook. His newest book, Game Time Decision Making, was a number one new release. David has been recognized by Variety Magazine as their Sports Humanitarian of the Year, and awarded the Ellis Island Medal of Honor. David, welcome home, my friend, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I love love that intro. All I keep thinking is my mom would be like, "Yeah, but my other son's a doctor." <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? I've I've watched a ton of your stuff. I followed you for a very long time, and uh, I know uh, what your mom means to you. Uh, you know, I've seen several interviews. Um, you know, every time you mention your mom and your childhood, I mean, I see tears come all the time. And it's one of the reasons that, you know, on a personal level, from my my standpoint, I lost my mom at 13 years old and my mom was a single mom. And it's something that, um, you know, every time I watch you talk about your mom, I, I can feel that there's a, a level of connection there that I feel like people, unless they've went through that, just don't sometimes understand that. So uh, first question for you simply is. Um, you know, and I like to get to know the guests a little bit is what did you eat for breakfast? Are you somebody who, who has a very uh, regimented morning routine or what does that look like for you? Yeah, so I have two routines. One's the home routine and one's the adaptable routine. So <laughs> I'm at home right now and uh, my, my breakfast consists of an apple, a banana, a fiber uh, think bar. And because I, I meditate then work out every morning. And so... Uh, that that's literally my breakfast with grapefruit juice, uh, about 16 ounces of grapefruit juice. And then I'll eat, you know, two and a half hours later at the office. I wake up at four. So it's a, an earlier meal uh, and then get to the office and eat again every two and a half hours. Why 4 a.m., David? Why, why four? Is that is that specific? Is that just what's the is that? Yeah. Very regimented. So for me, yeah, 4 a.m. is because I travel a lot. If, uh, and I want to stay on a regimen of having a cycle. I want my body, mind, soul, spirituality, everything to be on the cycle. So if I can wake up at 4 a.m. every day in California, I wake up at 7 a.m. when I'm in New York. I do 9 to 10 when I'm in Europe. Uh, obviously, going to Asia is a little more difficult, but it allows me to have this 
routine life of being productive, accessible, and gracious in everything that I do. I'm really into efficient, effective, and statistically successful way of being. I want to be as productive as I can to provide as much value as you stated, but also accessible. I want to be accessible to others and access what I want with that lens of gratitude. Uh, with my big mission and my big goal in life, you know, since I've been 50, to empower over a billion people to be happy, being and knowing that happiness is the biggest problem that we have on earth and that I have the ability through inspiration to impact that many people to create a collective consciousness to change the world into an abundant world of happiness really excites me and doesn't mean I'm not living in the pragmatic world. You know, I make a lot of money to help a lot of people and have a lot of fun. And I, and I love that slogan that you have, and it's all over your website. You say it constantly. And I really think with, you know, they make a lot of money, help a lot of people and have a lot of fun. I think it kind of covers all aspects of life. Warren Moon is your, your business partner. I'm actually from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. So we come from the Edmonton Eskimos land. So I'm sure through Warren, you must have heard or know where Edmonton is on the map in terms of CFL and all that. I've been there. Yeah. Oh, you've been there. Okay. Here's the thing about, you know, Black History Month's coming up. Yep. It's the age of the black quarterback. We're doing a bunch of things. I, you know, I, I never will miss a moment to reiterate Warren Moon because, you know, as he gets older, I think he's almost 63 years old now. People forget, man. They they took a California MVP who played for the University of Washington. Not just for one year to prove that he was the greatest quarterback of all time, but for six years. And he brought five great cups to Edmonton. Yes. He played the game better than, and at a higher level than anyone. And when I tell people as an entrepreneur, you need to enjoy the consistent, persistent pursuit of your potential. You want to go to work for yourself and invest in yourself. Then you better want it as bad as Warren Moon wanted to play quarterback in the NFL. That, that's how bad you want to have it. That's the fire and desire that you need. How did you? How did you and Warren hook up? But you know, in all the interviews I've I've watched of you and kind of talking about your journey, and I know you know you basically said, "Hey, I, I grew up extremely broke and poor, you know, and wanted to be you know rich, and I wanted to make money." And you know, I looked at the lawyer. I said, how, "You know, you basically said, hey, what lawyers make the most?'" And you said, "Oil and gas litigators." How did you get on the path of meeting Warren Moon and into the sports? you know, type of arena there. I find it, you know, yeah. it's very interesting. It's got to be an interesting story. Yeah. So number one, I've never been a person to leave my, you know, points of entry close. I, you know, I always kept my options open and had, you know, a lot of people go through life looking like this. Yeah. I've always looked like yeah. this. And yeah. it was really stemmed from having a single mom uh, wanting to be rich. So I wasn't industry specific. I was rich specific. I wanted to make a lot of money to buy my mom a house and a car. As you know, because she worked two jobs and six kids and packed our dinner in a, in a car to work those jobs and, you know, gave everything to her kids, which chokes me up still, as you know. Uh, mm. So for me, what led me to that point was I developed skills, knowledge and desire to make money. So out of law school, instead of being a real lawyer, as my mom said, against her advice, because she said the Internet was a fad. I sold legal research online and in nine months, you know, being as focused as I was, putting my attention plus intention, I created a coincidence of making a lot of money. I bought my mom a house and a car as a millionaire nine months out of law school. I worked on the Silicon Valley, learned how to raise money in Sand Hill Road, became CEO of the world's first smartphone. And that's when Lee Steinberg and I met, uh, Lee Steinberg being the most notable sports agent, as you mentioned. and. 
Warren Moon and Lee, 10 years apart, went to the same high school. Lee had represented Warren and coached and advised him about sticking to his morals and his his guns, that he was not a wide receiver, that he was a quarterback. So Lee was the one that inspired him to go to Edmonton and then finally got him into the Oilers where he became the highest paid player in the NFL and played 17 years, made the first African-American in the Hall of Fame. But Warren and I met at Lee's office uh, once again, you know, focusing in on knowledge, desire, and skills, Warren poached me as Lee had his personal difficulties. Warren asked me to start a business with him. Uh, so I attracted these things because I paid attention and put my intention into what I wanted. And these extraordinary coincidences happened in my life and continue to happen in my life. And, uh, you know, I always say surround yourself with the greatest people and the greatest ideas you can find. I've been so blessed and keep elevating myself by surrounding myself with Hall of Famers, world thought leaders, just extraordinary people that are elevating me and elevating themselves. Well, and you talk a lot about, you know, you know how to attract money. And it's it's really interesting. Uh, full, full disclosure, my wife and I were watching a video and I said, this is the gentleman I'm going to be interviewing tomorrow. And my wife is so much better than me at so many different things. And she's a extremely practical, extremely analytical. And uh, we're watching your London Real uh, clip there. And, you know, you talked a lot about just, you know, having you're like, I know how to make money, you know, and you talked a lot about, you know, you're 30, 32 years old and you're talking about, you know, basically you're at the height, you're a hundred million dollars in and then boom, 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 you know, you go bankrupt and lose a hundred dollars, a hundred million dollars. Everybody likes to ask you how you lost a hundred million dollars. But I think the question I want to ask you is, how do you keep $100 million? Right. So that's a great question. Uh, you know, ask for help is how uh, I lost it. I didn't ask for help. Asking for help is how I keep it. And this is what I've learned. I focus in on making money. So what happened in the past was I was really good at making money, but then I started diverting my attention and intention to things that I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. I owned a golf course, a mountain, stocks, and, you know, and doing all these things instead of paying attention to what I was good at, right? I'm an extraordinary salesperson, really good at making money. I started diverting my attention. So what I realized was if I focus in on doubling the amount of money I make as fast as I can, who cares what happens to my money? I could put it in under my mattress, mm. right? And I'll make more money than I did trying to outsmart the universe, outsmart the markets in time. So what I've done is I focus only on making money, then I put it into 100% guaranteed facilities. So whether it's you know an annuity or IUL, it has to be, and I just let it sit there, but I don't invest in anything that has a chance of losing money. I don't care if it makes any money, I just can't have a vehicle that loses money. So. I you know, was more interested in interesting. I asked for help, went to some of the biggest and best financial advisors who helped me find the right products according to my values, my personal experiential giving and receiving values. Me personally, this was the best vehicle for me. So to keep my money, I only focus it on making it and I put it into things that have 100% guaranteed no loss provision. So as long as I don't lose it, I'll have money. <laughs> So 2007, you hop on a plane, you're sitting beside a a lady that uh, changes your life, so to speak, 
Uh, the word that always stands out that you say all the time, and it's one that just wrinkles, and that's why you know I say it on Instagram and all this is vibration. I notice you wear beads on your wrist. Can you tell us the story about beads for you? I mean, every time I ask somebody who wears beads, you know, the answers are very different depending on spirituality, religion, all these different things. What do the beads symbolize for you? How did that come into fruition? Does it tie back into that 2007 plane ride with that amazing lady that you kind of said, geez, don't waste my time. I'm a millionaire and I'm, I, I, you know, I got no time for this. I'm all about my wealth creation. I mean, you're, you're, you're yeah. a hilarious character. And I, you know, for everybody who's listening <laughs> to you and loves you. She told me that she can teach me to vibrate faster and raise my awareness because you only can be aware of that which vibrates equal to or less than you. And I'm like, yeah, so what? And she's like, well, what vibrates the fastest? I'm like, I don't know. She goes, the truth. What if I could teach you the truth? And and I said, still like, yeah. She goes, what do you want to learn? I'm like, well, like to buy or sell something. She goes, see, how about we meditate so you can raise your awareness. You'll know when to buy or sell, Dave. And I'm thinking in my head, She's now motivated me to, to to meditate by using my greed and ego. And then I became egoless as 10 years went by. But um, these beads, extraordinary. This is super cool story. Here's what I think about beads. I trace calligraphies. I wear beads. I meditate. I study the Course of Miracles, Kabbalah, Old Testament, New Testament. I, I'm a madman for at least an hour a day minimum about improving and expanding my mind. These beads were given to me by a man named Master and Dr. Shaw. He's one of the world's biggest, greatest healers from China. He actually lives in Canada as well. But he, these are blessing beads, these ones, and the other ones are tiger and uh, they're energy based. But these have blessings on them. Here's the rule with anything, whether they're beads or calligraphies, whatever. Number one, is there any risk in doing it? You know, like in Mexico City, they say to get you know everlasting infinity in life and wisdom, you got to cut your head off. The risk is too high for me to believe that. <laughs> so, Fair enough. Beads, no risk and expense, by the way. So um, I wear beads. And then two, does it work for you? Mm. Right? Not anybody else. Like I'm into voting for what works for me. I'm into voting for what I want for my life. I know it will become an, an, elect in, an election in my life by voting for it. So I vote for my beads to work and to bring me a clear karma, to to bring me the right energy to allow. Here's how my philosophy is. I'm connected all the time, 24 hours a day, to the most powerful source of energy, light, and knowledge. These beads help me clear the interference between that and that which inspired me. I have more power, kilowattage in my pinky. It can light up all of Manhattan. I'm blocking that energy. These beads help me clear that energy. Interesting. Do you find, do you, with, with being a father and a husband, do you have to separate yourself in, in your meditation with kind of the busyness of life? Or do you, are you able to, to put that in as you're going in real time? Or do you have to step into a different room? Have you, do you have to carve out a portion of your day? Yeah, so I always meditate at 4 a.m., uh, one of the reasons is I like to find the highest frequency to my day, set a baseline for my day. So I know when I'm an ego based consciousness moving in the wrong trajectory, I stop, drop and roll back to the higher frequency. It also conveniently enough has less interference going on in the world. 4 a.m. is a very quiet time, a lot less electricity and frequencies moving around TVs, radios, phones, a lot less usage around me. So a lot clearer on the energy. Also, everybody else is sleeping in my house. 
house. Uh, so I have a lot less distractions. Um, so people ask me why you meditate at 4 a.m. Those are the reasons why. I take all decision-making on three levels, though, and I think this will help you because everyone has a counterintuitive belief of the conflict between family and money and goals, and here's how I simply put it. Number one, there's monetary uh, currency. It's called money. Mm. Money's an object of energy that we put into the flow, mm. and it allows, money will not buy you happiness or love, but it will allow you to shop. And if you shop for the right things, you will be happy. If you shop, shop for the wrong things, you will not be happy. It's that simple. I know that with a green card, I get so much. With a gold card, I get more. With a platinum card, even more. But with a black card, I can almost buy anything that I want. And if I shop for anything I want that makes me happy, I can make that money, help people, and have fun. I start every decision, family, business, you know, the activity I get paid for, friends, all at a money level. And I do a check and say, okay, how is this gonna improve my monetary situation? Because if I improve my monetary situation, I can help other people and have fun. Then I go into a faith-based decision. After I see, okay, this is what I'm gonna do money-wise. Now, you know, college for my kid or buying my kid a cell phone or, you know, making me pretzel, you know, or, or broccoli, whatever I'm deciding. I take it out of a monetary context. Then I, and the way that I do that is I, all I do is extract time. Mm -hmm. I say to myself, if you really have faith, then you would live in an infinity. Meaning it doesn't really matter because I got a billion lifetimes to learn these lessons. So what would my decision be if there was no time attached to this decision? That becomes a faith-based decision. Then I blend it with the pragmatic world I live in, and I usually come up with a blend decision. Sometimes I make decisions only on money. Sometimes when I'm really lucky, I make a decision fully on faith, and it always turns out better. But I wanna to reiterate to everyone out there that even though I talk about this, teach it, preach it, whatever, I'm still too afraid to make most of my decisions only on faith. I'm too afraid, I'll admit it. I am too afraid. So there has to be some kind of blend money and faith and that's how i distinguish meditation activity i get paid for activity i don't get paid for family decisions that i make for my children's future for my health my wife decisions we make together all of those are usually in a blend but i make sure that i touch not only the monetary but also the faith and then allow it to blend into hopefully what is most aligned with my personal experiential giving and receiving values think that um, prior to you going bankrupt, you're obviously rich. Now I feel like you're wealthy. And, and for me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but my interpretation is the difference between rich and wealth for me would be that you're making money, but you're also emotionally profiting and spiritually profiting. Do you feel like you're emotionally and spiritually profiting, you know, post bankruptcy? Do you feel like you did not do that pre bankruptcy? Do you even think of it? in those terms I, I do like the words emotionally profiting for me it's something that zaps my my heart when I hear that term yeah I think one of the other areas too is just health uh, oh, I'm profiting in health absolutely right yes. so I, I ignored that for too many years and I always take the time to tell people and they're like what's your best advice I'm like find something you love to do uh, health wise at least an hour a day Yes. You know, you can't give what you don't have. My wife rocked my world. I'll try to say this without crying, but rocked my world. When I made it back 
I went to go thank her because Please she cry, was the David. catalyst. Please cry, David. You are home. Welcome home. I said that at the beginning. <laughs> you, you, you can do whatever yeah. you like, my friend. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I, um, I was so grateful to my wife because I had this wealth, right? I wasn't rich anymore, but I had this wealth, emotional, spiritual, phys- you know, literally I, I had this wealth. So I wanted to, to show my appreciation to my wife. And I asked her, what can I do for you? I'm living this extraordinary existence. I would not be here. And this is the first time in my life. I get it. What can I do for you? And she said, she goes, you need to take care of yourself. Because I know if you take care of yourself, you'll take care of everyone else. Mm. And so I started looking at my health as part of my wealth. Because I always put my family first. Then I put the activity I got paid for next. Well, if you put your family in the activity you get paid for before your health, you'll never get to your health and and make it full. Mm -hmm. You put your health first, you're going to have more of the others, the more of the activity you get paid for, more family time. And so I want to tell everyone, best piece of advice I can give you is spend a minimum of an hour a day on your health and all that wealth will follow. And I definitely subscribe to what you said. Wealth is that combination of spiritual, emotional and physical health. Mm. as well as financial health. Mm. And so if you are emotionally healthy, spiritually healthy, physically healthy, and monetarily healthy, that is wealth to me. It's, it's interesting, I, and I love that point. What, you know, it, it, I too grew up extremely broke, and all I thought about, you know, a football helmet to I me... I feel I, sorry for the rest of you, buddy. Hey, Ryan, I feel sorry for everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's it's true, and and I and I think that you know, growing up, I always wanted to have money, and you know, I share the story all the time. But you know, quick stories. At age thirteen, I taught myself how to cut my own hair. I started playing football. I saved the money that I would pay each week till I was eighteen. So I saved money for five years of cutting my own hair. I bought my first rental property and I flipped it, and I got my first taste of money because it was a, a thirty thousand dollar check. And for me, that was like a million dollars. And I bought stupid stuff and I started buying these shoes and I would have these drawers full of shoes I never wore. And I said to myself, and I didn't want to wear them. I said, what is my issue with buying stuff that I don't want to use? And that was psychological, of course, right? Because I'm going back into the into the poor days. You mentioned something in one of your interviews and you said, man, you know, Ruth's Chris, you know, when I go to a nice restaurant for me, that was always about like, wow, you know, so thankful. And you had the gratitude in 2020. Now, what is your version of Ruth's Chris, Ruth's Chris, David? Because I think it's a great kind of question, you know, because for you, it was such a big thing. You know, for me, it's watching other people. So I built two community centers in Africa. Uh, for my 50th birthday, I did, went around the world. It was one of the m- more challenging things that I did. Most people may think it sounds easy, but imagine giving up 50 days of your year to do a party to raise money for something. And so the Ruth Chris of the world for me is every time that I am blessed with enough and allow it to come through me to truly impact other people's lives, like building community centers in Africa, or I'm the Chancellor of Junior Achievement University. I donate all of my content, my books. I'm able to, because of the wealth, that combination of all the things we previously discussed, I'm able to impact all these people. And I actually, when I'm in a crowd, 
and they get to know me, whether I'm speaking on a stage or coaching or videos, and I say to them, do you believe that in my lifetime, after listening to my philosophies and my energy and inspiration, do you believe in my lifetime that I can impact a thousand people to impact a thousand people to impact a thousand people to be happy? Do you believe that? I got 60 some more years left on this earth. I know that. Do you believe I can do that? Impact a thousand people to impact? I will tell you, everyone believes I can do it. And yet, if I told them 10 years ago, hey, do you believe I can impact a billion people to be happy on earth? Everybody like, dude, stop using drugs, man. You're crazy. <laughs> Meanwhile, every single person that listens to me now knows like I do that I can do that. A thousand people to impact a thousand, a thousand, a thousand times, a thousand, a million, a million times, a thousand, a billion. I have the possibility and probability and my perspective, all three of those, that in my lifetime, I'm gonna impact over a billion people to be happy and change the world. That is my Ruth Chris. I love that. If if the world is a game right now, I, I look at when you talk a lot, I like to study people. I, I feel like, and you say it best, man, sometimes it's a lot better to be interested than interesting. And I'm very interested. I'm I'm curious like a little kid still and i never ever want to lose that quality because i think curiosity just sparks everything that being said for you going around and i mean man you're covering a lot of ground and i can see your gear especially as of late you're kicking it into high gear high gear high gear your shows if i type in david Meltzer, assuming the journalist doesn't come up and you do <laughs> i just see I just, I just see the inundatedness of, of david Meltzer. for you if you're playing the game are you the coach are you the player or are you the commentator? If you had to pick one. That's awesome. I would say the owner, man. Like I get to do <laughs> all of them. So, like, you know, that's truly how I see it. I'm the owner of the game, man. I get to when I want to be the commentator, I'm the commentator. When I get to play, I want to play. When I get to coach, I get to coach. But I get to choose. I've created an opportunity to platform that allows me to be all of them. I think to because you are curious. Which one do I enjoy the most? Coach. I like to be the coach. Mm. I I'm in a point in my career where I enjoy watching. Like, nothing fires me up more. I have a young kid that I've been mentoring, and he's a multimillionaire. He has 29 stores in 18 months that he's opened, and he, wow. he has a beautiful wife and two kids. He's wealthy, man. He's just killing it. And, you know, it's literally, I would, I mean, I get more joy out of that coaching him to that position than me having all those things that, that he has. And, you know, even closer to me is my wife and my kids and my nieces and nephews to see their great success and any part of it that I can play as a coach, as a parent, as an uncle or aunt, you know, a catalyst. That's where I live. That's where I prefer to be. But I, I am an owner. I get to do them all. Quickest way to wealth if somebody has zero coach, player, commentator player mm, of course of course yeah see because it's funny because when you get to your stature and where you are in life you can somewhat sit back and say i do like being the owner i do like being the coach but pre i mean you're third david Meltzer at 28 27 29 years old you wouldn't oh you're a beast man you're you're ferocious I'm and this is what this I'm is what i'm a mule i'm yeah. a 64 hour a 64 oh. hour day I tell everybody, I, I was a millionaire in nine months because I beat people with math. I simply said, I'm going to work twice as many hours, twice as efficiently, twice as statistically success. 16 hours times 32, 
right, to 32, to 64. And I'm going to have activity I, I get paid for seven days a week. So in nine months, when I made a million dollars and they were saying, oh, my God, you blew out our comp plan. I'm like, no, I didn't. I worked 10 years. My comp plan was 250 a year. I only made 100,000 a year. I just squeezed it all into nine months. <laughs> So for see for everybody listening now, and you know this, especially with content creators, um, we had Patrick Bedavid on the show, and he's very adamant about being a practitioner. He said, in his opinion, he said, "I'm not gonna trust somebody who made their money off selling the course. I'm gonna trust somebody who actually did the work, who built an actual business, and who has something there." In 2020, when you hop on YouTube and online, especially when we look at kids that are, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, looking at, you know, multimillionaires, there's a lot of information that I think that is false going out there because everybody's looking at David Meltzer in 2020, but we're not looking at David Meltzer at when David Meltzer was 28, 27, 29 years old. What I love about it is you're doing your best job to give a great 360 degree perspective and saying, Look, kids, quote unquote, here's what I did. It worked and then I lost it all and it hurt. And then the universe opened up and now I'm on a mission. And I mean, you mentioned you said I made my first million back within two weeks. And it's like, wow. Right. But now you're doing it. I kind of say you're building your wealth on steady foundation rather than a foundation that maybe did lack the emotional and spiritual profiting, so to speak. So people who are listening now and starting what would you say to them if they are at zero and you want them to build? Maybe they don't go rapidly, but maybe every single day there's a brick and another brick. What would you say three to them? Things, right? Three things, real simple, pragmatic things. Number one, you've got to invest in yourself. There is no sacrifice. So when you wake up every day, what are you doing to invest in yourself? Because if you invest in yourself, you get number two and three. Look for acceleration every day and growth. Mm. Accelerate, that's all. Do not attach your, your emotions to an outcome because here's the mathematical formula of attention plus intention equals the coincidences we want. If you focus on acceleration and growth, not on the outcome, you will focus on the outcome sooner or later, you're gonna start voting for other people's outcome for you, not yours. I'll give you an example. Let's say it takes you 10 years to get to 25% mm. of where you want to be. At 10 years, 99% of the people start listening to all the snickers and the laughs and the, the negative advice and the, you know, you should have this and that and basically what other people are voting for them. Mm. I say that 99% don't get it because in five more years of the people that are focusing on acceleration and growth, that 1% now 15 years in, they're 50% of the way there. Now, out of that 1%, 99% of those people after 15 years start listening to what other people are voting for and they they don't make it. They attach their emotions, they start thinking they're a loser or a failure. Here's the sad part. If they just would have stayed the 1% of the 1%, stayed focused in on acceleration and growth, in just two and a half years, they'd be 100% of the way there. In half amount of time, 200, half amount, 400, half amount, 800. You need to invest in yourself, enjoy the consistent, persistent pursuit of your potential by looking at the acceleration and growth you're having every day, the lessons that you're learning, and sooner or later, things will keep speeding up 
and doubling and you'll get there, but you gotta vote for what you want, meaning invest in yourself. There is no sacrifice. It drives me crazy when people are like, I had to live in my car and I sacrificed so much. No, you didn't. You invested in yourself, right? There's only two ways to invest in yourself, right? Get money or put your time into yourself, right? Sleep on couches, sleep on floors, don't eat at Ruth Chris, right? That's not sacrificing, that's investing in yourself because you want more acceleration and more growth. I think that's I think that's absolutely amazing. You in on your Instagram, at least every you know four or five posts, you always are sitting in a group of kids or there's some you're standing on a street with people around you and you got a coffee in your hand and kind of think every time I see one of them, I just kind of think I'm like, what is he just like pulling random people in or is he like it's, it's hilarious and you just you're giving a little bit of a talk and people are just you know it's a little little mini town halls that you're doing you know amongst your life. Yeah. You say a lot of the time, and I love this, and this is for people who are listening who are you know scared you know shitless so to speak of sales. More so, sales to me is is broken up into prospecting, presenting, and then you got to ask and get the actual sale. A lot of people are great presenters, but they never ask for the sale. A lot of people are scared of prospecting. For you, you said, could you imagine if you thought of, of rejection in a different way? You said, what if I told you there was 24 or 25 no's in between, you know, getting what you want or your end desire? What, what does that mean for you? And for people who are scared of rejection, how do you process that? Because, I mean, you, you're a consuming salesperson, clearly. Yeah, <laughs> I always say every no just puts me closer to what I want, even if I don't know I want it. You know, that's where faith comes in is it's pushing me towards something better. Why when things happen that you don't plan for a no, why do we automatically say this is a bad thing? I have shifted my mindset and said, oh, this is a good thing because now I'm closer to what I want. Even if I don't know what I want. The universe knows even better than I know. So it's pushing me. And I use, you know, buying houses when people think, you know, oh, I lost that. Or I love Joe Osteen, you know, when he goes through the process of how he got the compact center where the Rockets played, right? Which yeah. changes whole whole trajectory. I mean, he must have found four or five properties for his church. And every time he was disappointed and it was just pushing him towards something better. So I always tell myself, what if there's, you know, 25 no's between me and what I want? How excited would I be after one, after five, after 15, after 20? By the 24th no, I'd be so stoked. And it's just a mindset. Uh, one of the things I like in your philosophy, I would just add one thing. I believe in prospecting, which is stimulating interest. I believe in transitioning that interest by utilizing, you know, the questions to find the reasons, impacts, and capabilities. I believe in, in asking for a close, share, sharing that vision. But the majority of the time, what I practice is managing and developing that vision, right? And I do that through two series of questions. One, a series of questions to determine the value that I can provide, and a series of questions to determine what that person can do for me. Uh, that second part that requires radical humility is often missed, but those series of questions drive my life. Here, I got five things that drive my life. My values, gratitude, empathy, accountability, inspiration. Two, those two series of questions, the ask and attract, series of questions for value, series of questions what someone can be to me. Student on my calendar with the lens of productivity, accessibility, and gratitude. Understanding being present by doing things now, which makes you efficient, effective, and statistically successful. And finally, five, practice ending fear, right? Mm -hmm. Clear that 
clear that corrosion between the most powerful source of energy, light, and knowledge that you're already connected to. Practice ending fear. Don't create the interference, the corrosion, the voids, the shortages, the obstacles between you and that which you're already connected to. If somebody says, David, I'm scared of selling and getting rejected, do you feel that's coming from their ego or coming from their humility? Oh, for sure, your ego. Humble people ask for help. Humble people ask for help. Ego people are afraid. The the definition of ego to me is the need to be right, need to be offended, separate, inferior, superior, scared, anxious, frustrated, angry, all the things that we project through our eyes into other people. Those are the things. It's all fear-based. You know, I rejoice in challenges and no. Like, I still, man, when people are like, like I'm like okay, what something better is coming. My mindset is so controlled and disciplined now on being grateful and seeing I get to do this. What do I learn from it? Accountable is a great thing, right? What did I do to attract this to myself? What am I supposed to learn from it? If you can draw a lesson from everything that doesn't go as you plan, right? Meaning a no. Mm. If you can draw a lesson from it, you gain. You've appreciated it. You mm. a, a lesson. That means you've added value. The minute you have a lesson, life is about lessons. You're going to forget every lesson you ever learned, but you have the power to access those lessons anytime. And the lessons are going to keep on coming until you learn them. And they're going to draw result in physical, emotional, or spiritual pain until you learn them. So if you get spiritual, mental, emotional, or physical pain, you just haven't learned the lesson. So go learn the lesson. <laughs> David, I like to ask this question. I know we only had a certain amount of time booked with you, but there are three quick last questions. My my third last question to you is, how do you give access to time? People who listen to my show all the time, I get asked, Ryan, how do you how do you get some of these guests on? How does that work? You know, I, I message this person, they didn't get back to me. How do you give access to your most precious asset, in my opinion, which is your time? How do you differentiate that? You get hit up so much. What is your filter system? I know you have a team, but you ultimately say yes or no. So number one, I'm a student of my calendar. So being more efficient, accessible with my time. So I have more of it. Then I also have rules, right? I have a 520 rule. So my phone calls, my objective is to keep them all to five minutes. My interviews and meetings, I try to keep them all to 20. I do make exceptions for killer interviewers like Ryan Holtz. This is a rare. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> you probably heard. You probably heard them say he'd give you 20 minutes, right? Yes. Um, but I make exceptions. Uh, but when you realize that after five minutes on the phone, you're just visiting. After 20 minutes, you're just visiting. When you're controlled with your time. And it's driven by your values, my health, my family, activity I get paid for. When you just stick to your phone calls for five minutes, think how accessible you can be. When you have your meetings at 20 minutes, think how accessible you can be. When your energy level allows you to be productive, accessible, and gracious 16 to 20 hours a day, think how productive you can be. So accessibility to me is prioritizing by what's most important and then what's urgent. Delegating what's urgent and being very controlled and managing people's expectations of the time that you allot. Small, quick q and I'm going to say one word. Just tell me exactly what you think afterwards. Your mom. Love. Your dad. Lessons. Your wife. <laughs> Angel. Your kids. Life. And David Meltzer, my last question. What can I do for you? Share my content and do good deeds. 
please, I, uh, you can help me impact more people, share my content, let it speak for itself, who I am. I'd rather people hate me for who I am than love me for who I'm not. But this is my frequency. If you can share it with as many people as you can and do good deeds yourself, we have just done a blessing over the last 40 minutes. So thank you. Thank you, David, from Canada. I appreciate you, man. Much love and thank you for everything. Go Eskimos. <laughs> Take care, man. <laughs> Take care. Thank See you. See ya.